Good morning, Grace Chapel. It is so good to see you on this sunny, gorgeous day. Isn't this nice? Yeah. No more snow, right? Yes. Sit down, Jay. <laughs> Shh. Okay. Everybody know the Apostle Paul? Well, not personally, but you, 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 might, you might have read something he said. So Paul, a church planner, a theologian for Jesus Christ, writing to Gentiles, says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, instead of being motivated by selfish ambition or vanity, take note, Washington, each of you should, in humility, be moved to treat one another as more important than yourselves. Does that sound like James? That we've been going through for, uh, this is into our fifth week now. James, a church leader and a half-brother of Jesus Christ, writing to Jews, similarly slams that kind of prejudice, that kind of favoritism. Uh, we saw last week, especially in James chapter 2, verses 1 to 13, and James has been saying what we believe about God on the inside, this this saving faith in Jesus Christ as our Savior that we often give lip service to, we just did in singing, we will work out on the outside if it's real. If it's real. A big if. And you may have, if you've been reading along with us in James, if you're reading ahead, you will see that word if over and over and over again. Now, James lays all his cards on the table today. That's what he's going to do. Uh, he's pretty black and white. He just puts it out there, and it's up to the Holy Spirit in each of our lives to take that and to motivate us and to move us and to transform us uh, where we all need to be going, and God knows that. So that's a wonderful thing. I don't have to figure out where we're all at. God already knows, and His Word will do the work. Now, James lays all his cards on the table in chapter 2, verse 14. Here it is. He asks a question. What good is it, my brothers, and in some translations, my brothers and sisters, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? What good is that? The logical, the, the biblical answer is, well, that kind of faith is no good. That might not even be real faith, or the person claiming that kind of faith um, may need to do a, a heart check, you know, maybe do some repentance and to change their behavior by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that would have been so helpful to all of us, and it is, except he asks a follow-up question right away and ties it in to this one. And it's the second question, which has worried believers for the last 2,000 years. <laughs> am I in or am I out? Can that faith save him? And then we all go, ouch, oh. There's not much point in saying something if no one's listening. And James wants to make sure that his Jewish readers are getting this loud and clear. He wants to make sure you and I are hearing this. 
So he doesn't begin by saying, you know, I've done some considerable polling around the Mediterranean, and, and now I'm ready to present my findings. Here's what, here's what people are saying. He begins by asking these two penetrating questions. Is faith one without any works or out without any real proof or evidence good? And is it saving? Now, there are certain statements that are so universally held amongst we, we Christians in our world today, statements that are non-negotiable. You will not back down. You will not compromise. These are, these are taken, these are clear declarations from Scripture itself. Um, if you deny them, you are literally declaring yourself to not be a Christian. One is... Jesus is Lord. Amen? Amen? Jesus is Lord. He is master. He is sovereign. Jesus is Lord. Uh, that's one of those statements. You, you can't backpedal on that one. Salvation is by grace through faith. You know, that's another one, right? Uh, and James has the audacity to, to question whether a certain type of faith saves. It's been genuine faith that he's been harping on for the first two chapters, over and hitting it over and over. Genuine faith looks like this. This is what it is. Here's how we're supposed to live. And then against that, the contrast has been a deceptive faith. There are other kinds of faith, and one of them is deceptive. And he's been warning against that kind of a deceptive faith. So James has their attention. I hope he has ours. Faith minus works equals death. You want proof? He gives a hypothetical example right away. Verse 15. I love the way James illustrates because that's how a lot of us think. We need to… Well, tell me what that looks like. Well, here's the word if again. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed… So, what kind of person are they? Okay, the person who's poorly clothed, what are they? They're a believer. They're in the community. He's been addressing them as brothers and sisters. And he says, now, if somebody in your church community, in your, your church family, is poorly, poorly clothed and, and is lacking in daily food, like they're not eating three squares a day. And by the way, just a little aside here, have you noticed that this is the third example in just two chapters where James uses unfortunate human beings to illustrate his points in the letter? I think there's a reason for that. Verse 16, and one of you says to this person in your church family, go in peace, be warmed and filled. It's wonderful words. Without giving them the things needed for the body, and he asks this question again, that he's asked about faith. What good is it? What good is that? This kind of situation, if it exists in a church family, demands a response immediately. And someone has a response. While Grace Chapel is gazing upon a crying need, one person pipes up on Sunday morning and stands up and says, warmest blessings to you, poor unfortunate person. I hope it all works out. 
I really do. I got to go. I got a lunch appointment. I got to get out of here. There may have been some kind of commendable desire to see the needs met. There may have been, and that's why these words were said. But let me ask you, and James is asking, have any needs been met? And all God's people said, no. Yeah, exactly. Has anything changed? No, still inadequately clothed for a cold Michigan winter day and still pretty hungry. All that has taken place in this community that James is pointing out, this community of graced humans, is that some words have been spoken. Words are worthless if they don't lead to action. James' point. And therefore, he concludes, faith is useless. And he uses that word, useless, if it is nothing more than a matter of words. But Pete, when I was a little kid, I prayed the prayer. Well, that could be part of your problem. That's for another sermon, but we can talk about that later. Here's the conclusion. Here's the conclusion. Verse 17. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Dead and buried. But someone always objects because someone always does. And that's verse 18. But someone will say, James is anticipating, I'm talking to a bunch of Jewish believers, here's what they're going to say. But someone will say, James, you have faith and I have works. They're suggesting that it's a matter, just a matter of emphasis. It's where you're putting it. Are you putting it on faith or you're putting it on works? A Christian over here specializes in faith. And this other Christian over here specializes in works. And if we could just get them both together, wouldn't that be great? And James is like, no, uh, I'm not buying what you're selling. It may sound good. It may even sound somewhat logical, but it's not the way it is. James says, response, show me your faith apart from your works. I'm going to show you my faith by my works. He maintains that it is impossible to show true faith outwardly without works. You just can't do it. Don't even try. But it is possible to show faith outwardly through works. As a matter of fact, it's not only possible... It's the mandate. It's what we're supposed to be and who we're, what we're supposed to do. So that begs a question, and James is going to get into that now. Um, he's brought us this far in, the, in, his, in his letter, and some of you may be asking, okay, then, what is true faith? Like, what is it, really? James' purpose in, in the letter, we've seen, has been to encourage to encourage faith in the face of opposition. These people were under intense persecution. They had spread, been spread out. Some of them had, had their homes taken away. Some of them had lost jobs. There was a famine worldwide, uh, um, countrywide at, at the time. And so he's encouraging them to keep going on in the faith even though life is falling apart. And he's been crying for them to respond in saving faith to the life in which they are living. Saving faith, real faith, has a certain response, a certain outward look. He says, and he gets back to where they are, especially as Jewish believers, verse 19. Okay, you guys, 
you believe that God is one. You do well. That, that's, a, that's a good thing. Um, that's a very good beginning point. But even the demons believe that, and they shudder. You and I, who know Jesus Christ as our Savior, are saved only by our faith, by our trust in the redeeming work of Jesus Christ on the cross. We can never be mistaken about that. But there is such a thing as true faith, and there is such a thing as false faith, or to use James' language from chapter 1, a deceptive faith. Don't be deceived. And one of the marks of a false faith is that it is content that it contents itself with just mere belief in, say, the existence of God. Lots of people believe there's a God or there's a force or there's this unity, there's this one spirit that hovers over the earth that everything is, uh, that emanates from and returns to, all these, all, these, all these things about people believe there's a God. He's not even talking about that. He's talking about you Jews believe that there is one holy God, the Old Testament God. Well, that's great. Even the demons believe that. James' readers were Jews who had received the, the gospel, that their, the new good news that their Messiah, being God Himself, had come and fulfilled the law perfectly and then sacrificed His life for the nations and rose again on the third day. And their Jewish background also had going for it this Shema in the Old Testament, the Jewish confession of faith, where it is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It's good. Is it good to believe that there is one God? Yes, absolutely. It's wonderful. And James says that those who believe that truth do well. That's a, it's a great start spot. But is the belief in the existence of God sufficient for saving your soul? That's what he's saying. Is, is that belief good enough? And James answers by pointing to the demons of hell. They really do believe in the existence of one God. As a matter of fact, they battle against him every day. But they don't trust in the one God. They know the truth about God. And the truth they know, James says, makes them tremble, makes them shake. But is their belief a saving faith? No. How do we know? Look at their works. Look at the fruit they have on the outside, and you can determine what is really on the inside. And neither is a belief in God that just consists of nodding in agreement to all of the presuppositions and propositions and statements about God. That's not saving faith, necessarily. Verse 20, do you want to be shown, do I have to, do I have to literally show you? Yeah, and, and most of us would say, yeah, it would be nice, I would like to be shown. You foolish person. The person who 
says to someone who is in need, I hope you have a good day. I hope things get better for you and doesn't do anything about it. That's a foolish person from God's perspective. The Greek, the actual Greek expression there is, is empty person. Isn't that cool? I mean, it's not cool. You don't want a person to be empty, but I mean, I think how he ties it in through his, this literary device, you know, it's just comparing. Empty, no works, no faith. You're empty. You empty person. That faith apart from works is useless. What do you say? What do you say about people who claim they are saved, claim they are Christians, maybe even use the word born again, but don't live like they're saved? What do you do with that? And probably almost every one of you could stand up and tell of a family member or a friend that you're thinking of, and you can see their face right now. What do you do with people who, who, who claim they're saved but don't live like it, I mean at all? There's no, there's no fruit at all. Some would say, I've been told, that it's the church's fault, because <laughs> it's always the church's fault. It's never our fault. We is the church. How, how can it not be our fault? Yeah, that it is the church's fault, that these people made a profession of faith. They were even baptized. Some of them were even baptized became members. But the church messed up um, in the discipling of them, and uh, the person really is a true Christian, but they just have give no evidence or sign of it because the church screwed up. Others attempt to explain this phenomena that goes on in North America in particular, um, that it's, it's, it's given this title. It's called, there's this there are these carnal Christians, and they, they get it from First, first Corinthians, and they said that, so, so there are carnal Christians, and uh, this maintains that these people are truly saved. They're, they're, on their, they're on their way to heaven because they claim that Jesus is their Savior, but they're just not living as they should because they have not yet accepted Jesus as Lord. Have you heard that? It's like there's these two different salvation experiences that can happen in your life. One where you trust in Jesus as your Savior, and then years later, you can trust him in Him as your Lord. He's in their lives, but He's not yet, here comes the phrase, He's not yet on the throne of their hearts. You've heard that, right? You need to put Jesus on the throne of your heart because if He's not, who is? You is, and that's not right. So put Him on the throne of your heart. I don't relate. Maybe you do. I just I struggle with it. I don't relate with any throne in my heart. The uh, back in the 70s, um, there were a couple um, parachurch organizations that actually had diagrams, and they had hearts, and they had a cross outside the heart. Have you seen these? And then there's a, there's a chair in the heart with you on it, and then the next diagram, when you trust in Jesus as your Savior, the cross comes in, and you sit, you're standing beside the chair, and Jesus is on the throne of your heart. And to me, that's salvation. 
the day of. It's not something that happens later. Uh, I don't relate well with the throne in my heart. Maybe it's my, my struggle. But uh, I read in my Bible that God gave me, upon salvation, a new heart of flesh to replace the old heart of stone. That God, the great surgeon, cut me open with His Word and took out, He literally took out my heart, my heart of, of stone, and He replaced it with a heart of flesh. And there's no throne in there. I'm not jumping on the throne and off the throne all day long and then putting Jesus on. Or There was one moment, like, after I got saved where I said, now I'm going to make Him the Lord of my life and everything's going to be good now, and I'll never have to do this again. And I'm learning, and I'm being discipled by the truth of God's Word as to how that new heart that I already have at salvation is slowly transforming, sanctifying the way I live out what I really am inside, which is saved by the grace of God, washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. And my very being, my actions, my words are all changing over time as that heart of flesh starts to take over, is taking over progressively. So let me be cynical. I love being cynical. It's, maybe that's a sin. I don't know. I don't think so. Carnal Christians, if there is such a thing, get to have the best of both worlds. And it's not fair. They get saved, and they get to go to heaven when they die, but they get to live their life as if they're lost. That's not fair. <laughs> That's not right. And to all of this justifying and excuse-giving that we do, and let's be honest, we do it because there are people who we really love so much who are not showing any fruit of being followers of Jesus Christ, and we fear that they're going to hell. And when we talk to them about it, they say, no, I trusted in Jesus as my Savior, and they give you the date. And James gives a very plain and sobering answer to all that. Here's where you start with your analysis of your own life today and of those you're thinking about right now. Faith without works is dead. Enough said. So if you're being convicted about your faith today, as I am every time I open up the letter of James, <laughs> just to be honest, a really good place for you as a follower of Jesus Christ to begin is to repent of whatever it is you've been convicted of right now and conform by the power of the Holy Spirit within you to God's Word and what He asks. Go do it. You have the power through the Holy Spirit. Or maybe you are really exercised, you know, inside, and you're going, man, maybe, maybe I need to get saved. Awesome to come to that place, that you need salvation before this journey of faith even begins. Well, having stated this teaching on 
the outward substance of our faith that every one of us as followers of Jesus should be able to examine and see in each other. James gives two examples of it. Do you want to be shown, he says? So these are Jews, so where's he going to go? Obviously, he's going to go to the Old Testament that they were raised on since they were little kids. First, it's the patriarch Abraham. Second, it's the prostitute Rahab. Oh, what a dichotomy. Verse 21, was not Abraham, our father, justified by works? What? You've been, you've been saying something different. Paul says something different. The writer of Hebrews says something. Jesus said something different. Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works? When he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works. So he kind of explains it here now, what he's saying. And faith was completed by his works, and the Scripture was fulfilled, which we read in Genesis and in Paul later quotes in, in, in Romans. The, the Scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. Sinners, you and I, are justified, which means to, be, to stand before the judge, God, and to be declared righteous. Oh, man, none of us deserves that. But it's a fact. Sinners are justified, declared guiltless before God by faith in the redeeming work of the Lord Jesus Christ. He, he lived the life we could not. He fulfilled the laws of God that we could never fulfill. And then as the perfect sacrifice of God, he offered what none of us can offer as sinners. He laid down his life for the sins of the world. And the Bible tells us that Abraham was justified by faith. It's uh, Genesis 15, 6, Romans chapter 4, verses 20 to 22. He was justified by faith. But here in verse 21, James says Abraham was justified by works. You confused yet? And to prove his point, James refers to the time when God commanded Abraham to offer his only son of the promise, Isaac, in Genesis 22. And God promised had promised to make Abraham the father of a great nation. And for years and years and years, he and Sarah could not have children, could not, could, could not have a, a son to perpetuate and to fulfill that promise. And finally, God gave Abraham and Sarah this wonderful little child, this little boy named, that they named Isaac. And Isaac was designated by God as the one from whose DNA the nation of Israel would come and the Savior, the salvation of the nations would come. And then suddenly and inexplicably, Abraham is told by God to sacrifice Isaac on an altar with a knife. And then to light, it on, and light what remains on fire. And we are told that that was a test of Abraham's faith. Shades of James chapter 1, that the testing of our faith in trials and tribulations is what makes us mature. And Abraham passed the test. But if you think about it, Abraham was given two 
seemingly contradictory words from God's lips. One word was that Isaac had to live in order for the promise of a nation to be fulfilled. The other word from God was that Isaac had to die if he was going to be obedient to God, if Abraham was going to be obedient to God. And Abraham, instead of believing one word and rejecting the other, he believed both. And we know that from Hebrews chapter 11 that we just finished studying a few months ago in verses 17 and 19. We, re we read that Abraham believed that if it was necessary, God would raise Isaac from the dead. Sounds crazy, but it's true. And it begs the question for you and I as followers of Jesus Christ, what kind of faith do I have? And does it work? Was Abraham saved from his sins because he was willing to sacrifice Isaac? James knew, because he's read the Old Testament, that Abraham was actually declared righteous, justified before God, by God, long before he was called to sacrifice Isaac. His willingness to sacrifice Isaac was not the means by which he secured his salvation. He already possessed that. It was rather Abraham showing his, his obedience to God and his demands that he truly had faith. Verse 24, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. James' point is, is pretty plain Real faith will be displayed through what you and I do, not what we say. Verse 25, and in the same way, now we get to Rahab, and in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? This is the, the battle of Jericho, and the walls came tumbling down, but before they did, Jer uh, Rahab hid the, hid the spies protected them from being uh, found out and then showed them how to escape without getting caught. Are you wondering how James got from Abraham to Rahab, how he got from a patriarch to a prostitute? Well, James, again, is probably anticipating how people are going to respond as they're, you know, when you're writing a letter, you're thinking about what the other person's thinking and you write it for them um, and you anticipate how they might take something you're going to say. And he's anticipating an objection from these Jews. We all typically look for excuses when we're asked to work. It's a human condition. Uh, to put our action where our mouth is. Yeah, we, we don't always like that. And he's anticipating, James, you're telling us to, to show our faith by our works. And you're citing Abraham, Father Abraham, that great man, that isn't fair for you to do. Everybody knows that Abraham was a special man. Surely you don't expect us all to be like him. So James reaches, as it were, to the opposite end of the spectrum. And he makes the exact same point. True faith evidences itself in good works, which God, according to Paul, 
has prepared for each one of us to do. He prepared beforehand, before the foundation of the world. He prepared good works for you and I as his followers to accomplish good works. Is James saying that Rahab secured salvation for herself by doing the good work of helping the Israeli spies? No. She already possessed the faith even before the spies ever came to her. And we know that. that I'm going to give you actually a part of what she said to the spies when she first met them. When they arrived, she said, The Lord your God, He is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. And then she went on to tell him how they were all scared, uh, trembling at the news of this God coming through their land through the nation of Israel. Word about Israel and her God had come to Rahab and all the other inhabitants of Jericho before the spies ever got there, and Rahab had believed that word. But the rest of the people in Jericho had not believed that word. And they showed it by their actions. They displayed that faith by their works. And then they were judged. Verse 26. This is how James finishes this section. And then next week, chapter 3, we're all going to go to, it gets worse. <laughs> he goes back to the, what we say in our tongue. It's so true. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, we all know that, right? We've all been to funerals. And we realize that a body without the spirit in it is dead. It's a fact of life and death. Well, guess what? The cor same correlation goes to our faith. So also faith, apart from works, is dead. The point is that both Abraham and Rahab did something. That's the point. They did something. They did not just claim to have faith in God and go to church and sing the songs, which are good, good things for believers to do. Don't, I'm, not, I'm not degrading this at all. I'm saying this is, where, this is all some people ever do. Um, they didn't just go through the rest of the week idly sitting in their faith. Their faith led them to action. And did you notice the two actions that James picks out of the Old Testament as displays of real faith, they're, they're pretty drastic actions. And they put at risk through their actions everything they had, even everything they hoped for. And true faith has not changed in all the centuries that have come and gone since Abraham and Rahab. At this point in the service, in our, in our worship of God, um, because of how it's structured and what's, what's going on today, one of the only responses we can give right now is, is to rise together and to sing as one to our God and Father in heaven for all He has done and all He wants to do. But our response can't just end with that, because those are just words powerful, important words, but they're just the beginning. Is there, is there business you need to do today with somebody? I don't know. God does. Is there 
Is there something you've been, you've been pricked inside about and it's just eaten at you and you're, you're wondering if it will go away? Well, if it's coming from real faith, it's not going to ever go away until you respond and act on it. Our God has prepared good works for each one of us in this room to do before the earth was even created. Let's rise together. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, your, your letter through James penetrates.